Good morning. My name is Shelley Throne. My grandfather and my father lived with major depression, and so do I. I was raised in a family that valued the life of the mind. There is a rich and complicated legacy of educators and scholars stretching back five generations. Diving into difficult philosophical problems and fearlessly examining the human condition were highly valued pursuits. There is also a legacy of diagnosed and undiagnosed major depression. My grandfather, a pioneering public educator, had very dark times. He was prone to long periods of silence. He would spend hours in the private sanctuary that he created in the basement. We understood that he wanted and needed space. My father, a university professor, would spend many quiet hours in what we imagined were deep and important thoughts. He would go through phases where we wondered if he found joy or delight anywhere in the physical world. Late in his career, his perspective on the worth and meaning of his work took an even darker turn. He shared with us that there were no good students left in the world, that no one really cared about important ideas anymore, and there was really no point in continuing his work because it didn't matter. It was hard and a bit frightening to watch this man we so respected and loved express such hopelessness. A trusted family doctor recognized the change in my father and diagnosed him with major depression. Feeling that he had nothing to lose, he was willing to try medication. With great relief, we watched the suffocating blanket of depression loosen its grip on my father. We felt him reconnect and were treated once again to his mischievous sense of humor. Flash forward to my years of parenting young children. I began to lose hope that I could be a good parent. I believed that I could actually do damage to my children. I was certain the choices I was making would doom them to a life of misery. I will never forget and be forever grateful to my father who recognized the dark and this dark and futile thinking and urged me to seek the same support that he had found. Without shame, I can report that I started medication and began treatment and can see the goodness in the world again. Flash forward another 10 years and two of my children are struggling with worthlessness, anxiety, and hopelessness. The depression that is woven into the DNA of our family appeared again in this next generation. However, this time, we were able to shorten the lag time between recognizing the symptoms and connecting with therapy and medication. We were able to walk together down the path toward improved health, meaningful connections, and a greater measure of joy in our home. My name is Chad Bolstrom, and the impacts of mental illness surround me every day in my work at a community mental health support program right down the road called Vail Place Clubhouse. My work at the clubhouse offers me the privilege to support and bear witness to the courageous and resilient colleagues of our community in their efforts towards their mental health recovery and manage of their lived experience of mental illness. Daily, 
I see the ravages of symptoms of mental illness on the lives of my colleagues. But even more heartbreaking, the unnecessary pain and struggle of the stigma tied to this particular type of illness. I'm struck by how often I hear people diagnosed with mental illness become erroneously defined as the label of their illness. He's a schizophrenic, she's bipolar, they're crazy. While other life-threatening illnesses don't seem to elicit the same defining and judgmental response. I mean, when was the last time you heard she's heart disease or he's cancer? As difficult as it can be to manage a mental illness, it pales in comparison to the feelings of judgment in the community surrounding you. Contrary to common perceptions about mental illness, with treatment and support, most people will recover, just like any other illness. I see this every day. The resourcefulness, the strength of character, the creativity and level of ability, rather than disability, of my clubhouse colleagues as they demonstrate, as they fight to get their lives back and to keep growing. Like all of us, the support and encouragement of a community, the opportunity for purposeful work and a feeling like you matter makes the challenging path to health and success more clear and accessible. My name is Martha Bird, and I'm living with post-traumatic stress disorder. I want to forgive myself, forgive myself for being the way that I am, being disabled, not being able to work more, pull my load in society, give more of the great stuff I have to offer the world through work. Forgive myself for, let's start again. I forgive myself for being so hard on me, for constantly chastising and berating myself, for being mean to myself in my head, saying mean things to me, judging me, not understanding, not being soft and gentle with myself. I struggle with the term disabled and having a mental illness. I struggle with looking normal, so thinking I should be able to function by society's standards. Full-time work, eat regularly and well, move my body. I struggle on a daily basis with juggling all of this. Last week, I took on a new work contract, 15 hours a month. I went to work that Sunday at 5.30 p.m., and I didn't leave until 11.30 p.m. I missed dinner. I then only got five hours of sleep. The next morning, I had three hours of phone conversation with staff to resolve further issues and to build good rapport. That is nine out of 15 hours, and there is still three and a half weeks left for that month. The worst is continuing to review things in my mind. Did I forget something? Did I catch everything? Do I need to? My brain, it wants to explode. I walk around managing details in my mind. I become mean to myself. See, you can't do this. You are disabled. You are mentally ill. Shame of what is. 
desire for what I wish could be. Forgive myself for what? That my brain and my body works as it does? That I have wants and wishes that I can't fulfill? That I'm mean to myself about what I'm not able to do? That I feel shame? Don't know what to forgive myself for, but I must have done something wrong to be or feel the way I do. It must be my fault, so there must be something to forgive. I just can't think what it is. My brain is too full of criticisms and sadness, frustrations and desires and wants. No room to do one more thing, like figure out what I need to forgive myself for this time. Okay, so just to be clear, I haven't forgiven myself. Do you see that? Although, you know what is shifting things for me is this right now, talking to you about what is true for me. Uh, my name is Keith Washington, and I live with mental illness. My diagnosis is schizophrenia. People with schizophrenia experience paranoia and sometimes have hallucinations and hear voices. It was onset that hit me about the age of 27. It is sort of a painful condition for me. With help from doctors and medications, my illness is under control. What I do in my everyday life has helped me to manage and organize my time to stay healthy and well. Yes, I live with mental illness, but you develop an extra sense. You acquire a different lens in how you look at life. You pick up a different kind of drive in life. I just want to reach out to other people today who might live with some kind of health condition and say, there's hope. The Lord has blessed us to live this long. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe it is because our mental illness is helping us to achieve our goals in life. Or maybe we are learning to stick together to help one another to live a positive and good life. Whatever your cause, may we be blessed and live on. My name is Ruth McKenzie, and I've walked beside mental illness for most of my life. Growing up in a home where my siblings and extended family members have lived and struggled and thrived with various forms of mental illness. I want to begin my story by telling you another story, a story that begins in the 13th century in a small town in Belgium. An Irish princess called Dymphna fled her home and a tyrannical father in order to live out her Christian vows of celibacy and good works. And she found herself in a small town called Giel. She set up a hospice there, and with the help of fellow Christians, she cared for the poor, the sick of body, and the sick of mind. Dimpna was killed by her father in that town but she was honored by the Catholic Church and named the patron saint of mental illness for her work there. 
A large cathedral was built in her honor, and stories of miraculous healings in Giel began to spread throughout the countryside. Pilgrims from all over Europe flocked to this village seeking blessing and a cure for their mental illness. Now, here's the true miracle of this story as I see it, and it doesn't have to do with saints or miraculous healings. Or, um, well, maybe it does. <laughs> maybe it does have to do with saints and miraculous healings, but not the kind you might be thinking of. In the late, teen, in the late 1400s, there were so many pilgrims flocking to the village that the sanctuary overflowed with travelers. And so the townspeople started to take pilgrims into their homes. And over the course of centuries, a pattern of community life began to emerge. A deference and an acceptance of all kinds of mental expressions as part and parcel of community life. Over the course of 500 years now, pilgrims living with mental illness have found their way to Giel and come to that place even today. And the travelers are taken into people's homes to live in families and work in the community. In fact, in the 1930s, a census was taken in which a quarter of the residents of Giel were labeled as mentally ill. But that's not how the townspeople of Giel talk about their guests. They don't use the term mentally ill. They call them, they call the pilgrims their borders. Their borders. Some borders stay for a week, some for a few years, some never leave. And when you hear the residents of Giel talk about their community, they never characterize their way of life as strange or tiring or burdensome or painful. Instead, they say, this is just normal. This is how we live. We've always done it this way. This is us. There is a mental health center in Giel now. There are doctors and medications, but the real work of health is done in ordinary homes through ordinary things of daily life. Eating meals, hugging someone goodbye, cleaning up around the house, now, it's, it's not always easy. There are folks living with great challenges in Giel, some with hallucinations, constant movement to self-soothe, bouts of terrible inner darkness, and yet everyone seems to manage pretty well. Several years ago, a researcher and scholar in the field of mental health came to study in Giel. Ellen Barker wanted to know how this place worked. How did this place work? What was happening? One particular family and their border changed her whole way of looking and working within the field of mental health. Ellen attributed her aha moment 
to the buttons guy. Ellen interviewed a middle-aged man, the buttons guy, living with his host family. And the man got his name because he would twist and turn all the buttons off his shirt over the course of the day, trying to soothe his anxiety. And every night, his host mother would diligently sew them back on again. The next day, the button guy would twist them all off, and she would sew them back on in the evening. Wanting to be helpful, Ellen said to the host mom, maybe you should sew his buttons on with fishing wire. That way he wouldn't be able to twist them off. And the host mom was almost offended when she responded, no, no, you don't understand. That's the worst thing I could do. I will never use fishing wire. This man needs to twist buttons. It helps him to twist the buttons off every day. So here's what Ellen came to understand. She was witnessing the power of acceptance. We have to accept people and ourselves as we are, how we are, whole and holy human beings, just as we are. And in so doing, health and wholeness emerges. She witnessed the power of letting people be. Letting people be is the antithesis of the American way. We want answers, we want cures, we want recovery, we want it fast, we want a pill. But that's not what was making the village of Giel work. Instead, it was acceptance at its most profound expression. There was accommodation, deference and kindness embedded in the patterns of this community from long, long ago, a pattern of welcoming and celebrating the borders. Now, kindness and deference does not mean no boundaries. In one example, a border kept wanting to hug the host mother at every hour of the day in every activity she tried to undertake, so much so that it began to interfere with her relationship with her husband. So the husband sat the border down and said, look, friend, that's my wife. Go find your own girlfriend. <laughs> it didn't have an immediate impact, but eventually things changed. Or a host who would diligently chase the hallucinations of lions out of the house whenever the border saw them leap from the walls. Yes, doctors in Giel make diagnoses and prescribe medications, but the real cure, they say, is no cure. The real cure is no cure. It is living in simple, life-giving patterns of community. 
Here's what I've come to understand, friends. Community health has to do with its members feeling safe, significant, and having a sense of belonging. And the same is true for mental health. People need to experience a sense of safety, a sense of significance, and a sense of belonging. For a long time now, I have looked for solutions, for some cure to ease the suffering of my family members. But over the course of these past few years, I've come to realize that this quest is unsustainable for me and for my family, and perhaps not even that helpful. The community of Giel is much like the community I've witnessed at Vale Place and the community I experience at this church. These patterns of healthy communities has opened a new way of looking at things for me. These days I'm practicing a deeper kind of acceptance. I'm beginning to say to myself and others, living with mental illness is just normal. This is how we live. This is what we're doing. This is us, whole and holy as we are. Theologian Paul Tillich calls this kind of profound acceptance, grace. Grace, he says, is the reunion of life with life. Grace is that which breaks through and gathers us together in communal wholeness and says, you are accepted. We are accepted whole and holy in whatever form of human expression. We are loved. We are accepted and in turn become the sacrament of love we long to offer to this world. This, this is us. May it be so and amen.